0: All right, welcome to our uh, Covenant Church Equipping Class podcast. My name is Weston Brown. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Church, and we are in the middle of a six-week study called Lagos Foundations of Effective Bible Study, and the core of what we've been doing over the last few weeks uh, has been digging into the concept of inductive Bible study, which is a very simple three-part uh, concept. And the three parts are, one, that we would observe Scripture, uh, that we would just take time to read and to note the things that are actually on the page as we're reading the Bible, that we try to block out. Uh, any preconceived notions that we might have, or any ingrained ideas that we may possess about a particular passage of Scripture, and that we try to just let it speak for itself. And so, phase one of inductive Bible study is observation. Phase two um, that we looked at last week is interpretation. So, once we have observed what's on the page, we want to then ask the question, what does it mean? And then this week, phase three, we're talking about uh, application. So uh, observing, interpreting, and then applying. And this is more of the practical. Once we've determined what a passage of Scripture means, we then want to ask the question, well, what does it mean for me? Or how do I apply this? To my life. And so that's what we're going to jump into today. Uh, We've got two more weeks in this study. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at, again, uh, just some deeper uh, hermeneutical foundations for interpretation. Um, Hermeneutics is just the science or the study of interpretation. And so next week, we're going to jump into that. We're also going to be talking about translations. Um, We're going to be talking about the way uh, that the Bible has been translated into English. And one of the questions that people have is what translation of the Bible should I be reading? Should I be reading an NIV or a King James or an ESV or a New American Standard or the Message? If you've been in a Lifeway or uh, any kind of Christian bookstore um, in the last 40 years, one of the things that you know is that there are a myriad of biblical translations that are out there. And um, what we know is that the Bible was not originally written in English, but instead the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so the Bible that we have today, the English Bible that we have today, is a translation of a language that is not like English at all. Um, When the New Testament was originally written, Um, there weren't even lowercase letters in the Greek language. And the Hebrew language reads from right to left instead of left to right. And so um, next week we'll talk about some of the challenges that we have in interpreting um, and translating also uh, the Bible into English. And then we'll wrap up in our final week by continuing in that same mode of thought Um, But talking more about the issue of figurative or symbolic language in the Bible. And what do we do whenever we encounter figurative or symbolic language? Um, There are some people out there that believe that the Bible should be read 100% literally, but uh, you can't do that. Um, You can't do 100% literal when you're reading a book of prophecy or when you're reading a work of poetry. Um, That's not how you would... Engage those types of works in any other setting. Um, If you're reading poetry by Emily Dickinson, for example, well, you're reading it with the knowledge that the author is going to be using metaphor and symbolism to convey her point of view. And so the same thing is true in those areas of the Bible. What we have to know as readers and studiers of the Bible is uh, what do we do when we get to those sections? And what does it mean to us ultimately? How do we then apply it to our lives? And so, in our final week, we'll look at all of that. So, today, let's dig into um, application. And just as a focus statement for our time together, we want to say this There is one interpretation, but there are many applications. There is one interpretation, but there are many applications. Here's what we mean. Whenever we are uh, observing a passage of Scripture and then moving from observation to interpretation, um, interpretation is us essentially asking what was the intent of the biblical author? What was it that they were trying to convey? And no matter what text you're looking at, the original author had one particular meaning that they were trying to convey. Um, So, if you're talking, let's say just in very general terms, if you're talking about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, that only means one thing. That verse doesn't have multiple meanings, but it can have multiple applications or multiple ways that when you read it, you feel like it applies to you and your life. Now, it doesn't change what it means, but it does perhaps um, flesh out in different practical ways um, as you seek to apply that truth of Scripture to your life. And maybe you've been in this boat before where there's a passage of Scripture that you've read a ton of times, and has meant uh, something to you, and then at some point you read it again, and suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, this this applies to my life in a way that I've never realized before, and that's because I think God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is speaking some of those truths into your heart and into your life, and so there is only one meaning. You can't say that John 3.16 means something else other than what it actually says, Um, but from a practical application standpoint, this week we're trying to ask, we know what it means, now what does it mean for my life? What does it mean for my day-to-day? What does it mean for my existence? And so, one interpretation, many applications. And as we've said already, you know, ultimately interpretation asks the question, what does this mean in general? And application asks the question, what does it mean for me? And so I think that there are a few steps to effective application that we need to walk through in order to do a good job of this. And um, as we've said in weeks before, before we can get to this place, before we can get to application, we have to have an accurate interpretation. And before we can get to an accurate interpretation, we have to have adequate observation. And so each step in this process of inductive Bible study is totally contingent on the step uh, preceding it. And so if your foundation, your observational foundation is not good, then your interpretation is not going to be good And as a result, your application is not going to be good. And and so step number one in in just a few steps to effective application. First, we have to know the text. We have to know the text. And by that I mean we have to have spent some time with the text. Um, This is not a situation where we read something once And then we immediately, five minutes later, decide this is how it applies to my life. And I'm not saying that that can't ever happen, but if we're trying to be good students of Scripture, and if we're trying to glean the most that we can from the biblical text, then we need to sit with it for a while. And so, as I've encouraged in previous weeks, don't just read something once read it multiple times, engage whole chunks of Scripture at a time, do the difficult work of contextual analysis to figure out who is this author, and who are they writing to, and when was this, and where was this, and what was going on, and what was the cultural situation, what was the historical situation here. The more that we can get answers to those questions, the better our foundation of observation is going to be that can then take us to interpretation and application. So we have to know the text, and not just individual verses, but chunks of text. So again, to use John 3.16, everybody knows John 3.16. It's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, and most of the time, when people engage John 3.16, it is as a single verse. We engage it as a single verse, and yet... It certainly is not on an island. It does not stand alone. It is the 16th verse in a chapter. So what comes before it? What comes after it? Um, John 3, 17 is also a really important verse because Jesus is saying, I didn't come in the world into the world to condemn the world. I've come into the world so that people might be saved. Um, so the more that we can have... A strong grasp on a whole text, the better our interpretation and ultimately the better our application is going to be. Secondly, we have to uh, know ourselves. And this this may be one of the hardest things of all. I think it can be very difficult to truly know yourself. Um, I think it can be very difficult to truly ascertain your own motives even sometimes. And yet the more that we can know who we are, Um, both the good and the bad, uh, the better we can figure out how a passage applies to our lives. If we are living in denial about our sin or about a particular sin, then it's going to be very difficult for us to apply the Word of of God to that area of our lives. So we have to be uh, intellectually honest, emotionally honest about who we are, um, about the ways that we struggle, about the areas where we doubt, about the things that are difficult for us. And if we can't do that, then it's going to be very hard to apply the Bible to our lives in a way that is deeply meaningful and transformational. So we have to know the text, and then we have to know ourselves. Third, uh, we have to meditate on the text. And that may not be a word that you uh, expect to hear um, in uh, a church podcast, and yet... It is very much uh, in keeping with the teaching of Scripture. And when we use the word meditate, we're not talking necessarily about uh, meditation in in like a Buddhist fashion. But instead, we're talking about uh, what I said a minute ago, which is just kind of sitting with the text. And a goal of meditation... Um, in Christianity, as it, as it relates to meditating on Scripture, is not to empty one's mind, um, but instead to fill one's mind with the truths of Scripture. And and so here's here's a little exercise that that I love, and that comes to us from Dallas Willard, which for my money is one of the greatest. Uh, teachers and theologians, and especially teachers around the area of spiritual formation of the last hundred years, he, he's now deceased, but uh, Dallas Willard would, uh, was asked once kind of what his uh, morning routine was like, and did he, did he get up in the morning and have a quiet time? You know, that's a, very, that's a very American thing to ask, a very American Christian thing to ask, do you have a quiet time? And uh, Dallas Willard acted like he, he didn't really fully understand the question. Um, and, and so the person rephrased it and, and said, you know, do you, have, do you have a time when you read the Bible every day or when you pray every day or when you meditate on God's word every day? And, and he said, well, let me tell you what I do. Every morning when I wake up, uh, before I ever get out of bed, I I just begin my day by thinking about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And and what he said was, I I think about the Lord's Prayer, and, and what I do is just, I very slowly walk through, in my mind, not out loud, I just walk through each individual thought in that prayer. Um, our Father. Let's start there. I'll take that. He said. I'll take that. That idea that God is our Father, and just begin rolling that over in my mind. What does that mean? That God is our Father. Why is that good news, that God is our Father? In what ways is God a different kind of Father than earthly fathers? And then he said, I'll move on to who art in heaven. So so we have a Father who is in heaven. What is heaven? Where is this place? What what does this mean that our Father is in heaven? And so this is, hopefully you get the point. He said, you know, I'll just take a considerable amount of time and walk through the Lord's prayer in my mind, and I will just mentally meditate on each of these points. And when we talk about meditating on a text, we're really talking about the same thing. And so again, even with something as simple as John three sixteen, 16, um, what would it look like for you to even take 15 minutes or 20 minutes and sit in silence and center your thoughts on, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. What have you spent time breaking that down mentally and rolling it over in your mind and just resting in it, kind of sitting with it? Um, This is what we want to do. And a part of this, I think, is prayer, um, but it's more of a passive prayer as opposed to an active prayer where we are actively kind of talking at God. Um, I think a key in meditation is The practice of listening to God, which for many of us is not something that we do easily, and probably not something that we desire, and yet is so central to everything that we're discussing. Um, If we're going to arrive at an application that makes sense to our lives and that really does have impact, then we have to listen. To the Spirit of God. And so that's number three meditate on the text. Number four, and kind of goes in line with that, but number four is we want to memorize key verses. And, you know, I'll just be real honest with you guys. I've known people over the years who are big scripture memory people and who are firm believers that everybody should be memorizing scripture. And who, I, I think, some of these people that I've known have, have come across to me as very prideful in their Scripture memory and their ability to regurgitate um, obscure passages of Scripture at a moment's notice. And, and our purpose in this is, is not to become uh, spiritually elite or religiously elite, maybe is a better way to say this. Our goal is not just to become puffed up with knowledge about the Bible, or to be the kind of person that can just immediately insert a verse from the book of Amos into a conversation. But instead, as we're going through a passage, when there are key scriptures or key verses that stick out to us that seem to have impact or meaning or bearing on our lives then I think we owe it to ourselves to begin committing those things to memory. And for no purpose other than we consider the Word of God to be one of the most important things in the world. We consider it to be His divine Word to us. And we want to to hold some of those things inside of us. We talk sometimes about hiding the Word of God in our heart. We want to take these things and we want to commit them to memory, not just as an intellectual pursuit, um, but as a spiritual practice that I, I think has transformational power. When the Word of God becomes more of our language and it becomes more ingrained in our thought process. Because in order to memorize stuff, you've got to expend a good bit of mental energy uh, to commit it to memory. And so as you're reading through a passage, as you're meditating on it, as you're seeking to know the text, um, committing things to memory is hugely important. Next, we want to ask key questions and Um, We've already asked a lot of questions, probably, about a passage of Scripture before we get to this point, but most of those questions have been helping us get to, what does the text mean? These questions have helped us get to interpretation. So we've been asking contextual questions. Um, Remember those W questions, who, what, where, why, when, how, um, all of those things. But now we want to ask questions related to application. And so let's just walk through a list of of what I consider to be key questions that relate to application. First of all, as you're reading a text, is there an example to follow? Is there an example to follow? Um, So think about Jesus. Certainly, as we're reading the story of Jesus, and as we're reading the New Testament, um, we are continually I think, called to emulate Jesus. Um, He says things, and and he's quoting Old Testament, but he he says things like, be holy because I am holy. And so there is this direct call for us as believers, as disciples, to be like Jesus. Um, Jesus tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's telling them, I'm going a way to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to send a helper to you, and I, I expect you to go and now be me to this world. It's part of the reason why the church is called the body of Christ, because we are, uh, to use a cliche, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today, being guided by His Holy Spirit. And so as we're reading a passage of Scripture, we're, we have to ask the question, well, is there something going on here that I need to emulate? Is there something going on here that I need to apply to my life? Uh, so something that has come up for me recently has been, as you read the story of Jesus, um, Jesus is rarely, if ever, in a hurry. Um, Jesus is more than willing to be uh, inconvenienced, um, more than willing to get maybe sidetracked from the path that he was on, and I am not that way at all. Instead, I'm somebody that likes to have a plan, um, I like to have a routine, I like to have a schedule, I like to know what's happening next, and that's not the way at all that Jesus operates. And I have no doubt that there have been times in my life when I have maybe missed uh, key opportunities uh, in relationship with other people to either just spend time or to speak into something or to help with something. And I, I, I haven't been there or been apart because I've been too busy or I've been on to the next thing or I've thought, no, I don't have time to do that. And so, so for me, as I read the story of Jesus, um, an example... That I think he gives that we should follow and that I should follow is in living a life that is unhurried and is less busy, maybe, um, or less self-important and is more than happy to be inconvenienced and more than happy to get sidetracked. And so that's just an example. Um, Also, you know, the negative side of this too is, is there an example to not follow? Um, is, is someone being disobedient to God? Is someone doing something that is just um, inherently sinful? And, and we get the strong sense that this is not something God approves of. Um, is there an example to not follow as well? Uh, the next key question is, is there a sin to avoid? That kind of goes in line with what, what I just said. But, um, you know, what is this person or what is this group of people doing in what ways are they not trusting God, in what ways are they not believing the gospel, um, what sin is here that maybe is something that I need to avoid in my life? Paul, for example, talks a lot about sexual immorality, and that as believers that and this is something you just need to avoid like the plague, and yet we live in a world today um, that is hypersexualized, where sexual content is available. Um, in unprecedented ways, and it's very difficult if you own any kind of media device to avoid um, even what seems today to be kind of benign sexual content that 50 years ago would have been highly offensive. And so we have a big challenge, I think, as believers to Um, to avoid some of those things and to take Paul's advice. And so maybe as we're reading some of that stuff, um, the Holy Spirit convicts you that there's some application in your own life for that. Next, is there a promise to claim? Um, Is there a promise that um, Scripture gives us that you um, need to hold fast to and hold firm to? I mean, it could be something as as basic and yet as important as the uh, the, the basic gospel message, you know, that, that Jesus has died for us, um, that this is something that wasn't just for a small group of people in the first century, but is something that um, is very much for us and for our world today. Um, do you need to claim this, uh, this promise of God's grace? Um, what is it? What are you reading and, and how does it fit into that mold? Next, is there a prayer to pray? We mentioned the Lord's Prayer earlier. Um, I think most scholars and theologians view that as a model prayer, um, that Jesus' intention is to teach his disciples to pray, um, not simply to give them um, a, a kind of a prescripted spiel but instead, instead to inform uh, kind of the content of their prayer life. And so again, if we're breaking down that prayer, if we're meditating on it, then we're going to begin to see the individual components of it. That uh, the prayer begins by giving praise and honor to God. Um, when's the last time, as you were praying, that you didn't begin by saying, God, I need or I want, or would you please, and instead just began by extolling the glories of our God. When's the last time that you um, just worshipped God as a part of your prayer life? When's the last time you prayed, God, may your kingdom come here um, in Shreveport, in Bossier, in Houghton, in Blanchard, would your kingdom come here as it is in heaven? Um, so how should we be praying? I think scripture teaches us that. Um, is there a command to obey? Certainly that's a key question. Um, next, is there a condition to meet? Um, is there an error to mark? Um, And and there aren't always just immediate examples of some of these things. Um, But as you're reading through, as you're thinking about this list, um, has God given us some kind of command through uh, the writers of the New Testament or through Jesus? Is there something that we should be taking to heart and putting into practice in our lives? Is there some kind of error that we see someone else falling into in Scripture that maybe we're in danger of as well, that we need to make note of? Um, Is there some kind of conditional um, activity um, or some kind of conditional teaching that we need to make note of? Is there a challenge to meet? Number eight, is there a challenge to meet? Um, Just the other day, um, I was talking with some people about where the Apostle Paul talks about disciplining himself for the work of ministry so that he will not be disqualified. And so he talks about disciplining his body, like training. And the same, he's talking about runners running in a race. And he says, you know, I, I kind of train in the same way that runners train. Um, and so maybe that's a challenge for you. Maybe you're an undisciplined person. Maybe you're somebody that isn't kind of pursuing Uh, or or pursuing the kind of discipline in your life that would best prepare you for the work of ministry that God has called you to? Is there a challenge for you to meet? And so those questions, um, I think, will take you a long way in application. Um, Is there an example to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there an error to mark? And is there a challenge to meet? And um, and so those are our key questions. From there, uh, let's just talk quickly about the new covenant and, and the way that our effective application of the word of God rests on and is rooted in the new covenant. And so, um, if you haven't been with us in previous weeks, when we talk about the covenants, we are talking about Um, essentially agreements that God has made on different occasions with mankind. And so you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the covenant he made with Noah to never flood the earth again. And he makes this covenant with Abraham um, to give uh, a country to Abraham and to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. Um, We get to Jesus And what we learn is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all of these covenants. Jesus is the one that all of these covenants have been pointing towards. And so as it relates to the Mosaic covenant, the the covenant of the law, the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel um, at Mount Sinai, um, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish any of that stuff, but instead I've come to fulfill it. Because all of that was pointing towards me. It was all about me. And so we have to filter our application of the Bible through the new covenant of Jesus' blood. And and so ultimately what we mean here is this. We cannot take uh, a passage or a verse out of an Old Testament um, covenantal passage and immediately try to apply it to our lives without first filtering it through the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. We can't just cherry pick a verse from the law of Moses and immediately try to apply it to our lives without first filtering it through the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And and so let me... Let me try to give some examples of what I'm talking about here. And and I'll use some examples from the Psalms. Um, So in Psalm 139, David says this. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, God. I hate them with complete hatred. This is something that David does often in the Psalms. He is often um, calling upon God to murder his enemies. He's often calling upon God to strike down and destroy those who oppose him. And so if you're not filtering that verse or that passage through the New Covenant, what what you could very easily do is go, hey, look, here's David. Here's a man that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And he apparently had this big list of people that he hated, and that he was actively praying that God would murder. And so there doesn't appear to be uh, a lot of love or grace or desire for redemption for these people. Instead, there is vitriol and loathing and a desire to see them destroyed. And so, you could easily take that verse and apply it to your life as a way of justifying the hatred maybe you feel towards people that you perceive to be your enemies. But, in order to do that, you have to bypass the new covenant of Jesus' blood. And so, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5.44. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And so Jesus has taken something that would have been a common practice, which was to curse your enemies and to wish them ill or to ask God to murder them. Jesus said, that may have been what you were doing, but now I tell you this. I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them, um, even though they persecute you. And so this is the recontextualized teaching that comes through the blood of Jesus and through his sacrifice. Uh, Here's another example, also from David, um, also from that same psalm. Uh, David says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you could easily take that verse and just pull it out by itself and go, Hey, this is David teaching us that we're all perfect. Teaching us that we are exactly what God would want us to be. Um, And there's no need for us to change. There's no need for us to do anything different. There's not anything within us that needs to be corrected. Uh, Man, we have been made by the Father and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, the New Testament says this. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, I hope hope this makes sense. I I don't think this is super complicated. Um, I think the big kind of overarching rule here is be very careful just grabbing Old Testament verses out of thin air and immediately trying to apply them to your life. Um, And also be very careful um, to not make the mistake of thinking that just because something is in the Bible that God approves of it or that God validates it um, or that God is somehow validating it because it is in the book. Because if you've actually read the Bible what you know is that the Bible is not this collection of stories about these wonderful, moral, upright, upstanding human beings. The Bible is a collection of stories about misfits, about murderers, about adulterers, um, about people who are walking contradictions, about people who are hypocrites, about people who do horrible things. Um, about cultures that do horrible things, and just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's right or good or something that God would approve. And yet, people have tried over the years to make these kinds of arguments. Um, The whole uh, slavery conversation in America um, was supported by Scripture, and yet it was Scripture taken out of context and twisted and bent to suit the agendas of the men who were seeking to uphold slavery. Um, and their argument was basically, well, when we read the Bible, there's slavery in the Bible. You know, Joseph was a slave. Um, and so this is God's word to us, so it must be okay. But, but no, <laughs> That's not at all what the Bible teaches. It goes against everything we find in the New Covenant. And just because slavery is in Scripture, just because it was a part of the culture, or even uh, polygamy, you know, the practice of having multiple wives, multiple spouses, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's what God desires, doesn't mean it's part of His perfect plan, doesn't mean it's what He wants for our lives or the way that He wants us to operate. And so we have to be very careful with that. Um, And then the final step of application for us is simply to pray (laughs) and wait and and continue to rest in the truths of Scripture, Um, continue to meditate on them, continue to memorize them, continue to kind of hide them in our heart, and um, ask the Holy Spirit to begin to show you uh, what kind of steps you should take, what should be next, what needs to change, and, um, and my experience has been that he is more than happy to do that. So, hey, let's wrap up this week with, uh, I'm just going to quickly walk through uh, the way that I study the Bible, and by no means am I saying that this is the right way to do it. What I am saying, though, is I think you need to develop uh, your, your own unique way of studying God's Word. And I think we've provided the overarching framework by saying you need to observe it, and you need to interpret it, and then you need to apply it. That seems pretty basic to me. But uh, maybe the way that you actually do that on a regular basis is something that you need to kind of tailor to your personality and your life and and what makes sense to you. And so for example, as as you study uh, inductively, um, or as you read about inductive Bible study, one of the things that you may learn is that there are people who out there who have intricate systems of taking notes and marking things in their Bibles. And they use different colors and different symbols and all of that kind of stuff. And that, man, if you're like a hyper-organized person, that may be something that really scratches an itch for you and, and, and makes a lot of sense to you. Um, or you could be on the other end of that spectrum and that stuff's deeply stressful to you and, and kind of confusing. Um, and so don't, don't stress, don't worry about it. Instead, you just need to figure out um, the method that works for you. And so I'm just going to quickly walk through my method. Uh, so number one, I, I typically will read a text at least twice. And, and I'm just talking about reading it. I'm going to read it And as I read it multiple times, I'm going to write down in a separate notebook, I'm going to write down just notes, um, which are mainly just observations, and also questions. What does this person mean when he said this? Um, Or he seems to be alluding to some other passage here. Or um, I wonder what this word that's translated this way, I wonder what this word maybe means in the original language. I'll just write down some of the things that I see. And again, I'm I'm just observing at this point. Um, I'm also next going to write down just one or two key verses. And I, I don't know that there's some magic formula for what makes a verse a key verse. What I mean by that is just that I'm going to write down the things that stick out to me or the things that seem to be the most significant to me. And so write down one or two key verses. Number three, uh, I'm going to begin digging into uh, some study. And, and so I'm going to pull out what, are, what seem to be the key words in this text. So again, uh, just think about John 3.16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten or one and only son. Um, maybe you've grown up learning that verse with the word begotten. Well, that's not a normal word that I use every day, certainly. And so I wonder, wh- where does that word come from? Why-, why is that the word that the English translators chose to use? And what is the original Greek word? Um, what does that mean in the original Greek text? I'm going to dig into all that stuff. And you don't have to uh, spend hundreds of dollars on uh, tons of reference books or anything like that. And you certainly... In today's world, you certainly don't have to be fluent in Greek to do this work. Um, there are some great online tools, and there's some great software that's out there um, and available. It's a little pricey, but there is a software that's, that's also like the class called Logos. Um, but it can run upwards of $1,000, but it is uh, really, really incredible stuff, and will give you a full library of reference material. So I do I do highly recommend it if that's um, something that you're able to afford. But if you're not, uh, great free resources online. Uh, look up something that is called the Blue Letter Bible, which is an online source. Um, you can also online look up something that's called an Interlinear Bible. And we're going to check out the Interlinear Bible a little bit more next week. Um, but it's basically... Um, kind of the word-for-word word, um, translation of the original text. And without, without giving any real thought to readability or um, how, how this particular passage becomes a coherent statement in the English language, um, but it will break down the verse for you. Word by word, we'll show you what the original language was, and we'll show you the most literal interpretation for each word um, in the English. So, the blue letter Bible and also an interlinear Bible. You can search for the um, Greek interlinear New Testament or the Hebrew interlinear Old Testament. So, I'll study keywords, I'll study uh, the notes that are in my study Bible. Um, I've got a bunch of commentaries. I might look in commentaries. However, I, I, don't, I don't use those a ton. Um, I'll also uh, begin looking at cross-references. And so you ha- if you have a great study Bible, like an ESV study Bible or a MacArthur study Bible or something like that, there will be cross-references that will link you to other passages of Scripture that relate in some way. To the passage that you're reading. And so I'm going to look at all of those. I'm going to get a sense for the ways that certain words are used in other parts of the Bible uh, or the way that this thought or this passage relates to other parts of the Bible. And um, that's going to really help as I begin the process of interpretation. And so then number four, I'm going to try to summarize the interpretation in my own words. Um, I'm just going to write this down And a paragraph or two in in my notebook, um, what do I believe the interpretation of this passage to be? And then I'm going to just write down some thoughts, just some initial thoughts that I might have about application. Some things, maybe there are things that immediately jump out at you. Um, This is often my experience, things that immediately jump out when you're reading the Bible. And so I'm going to go ahead and just write down some of those things. Maybe this is something God wants me to learn here. And, um, and then, to just kind of finalize everything, I like to highlight, um, just in yellow highlighter, I like to highlight the things that I've read to remind me that I've read them. And so most of my marking and note-taking and all that kind of stuff is in a separate journal, um, but that's not at all because I believe it's wrong or anything like that to make notes in your Bible. I encourage you to do that um, if that's what you like to do. Um, but anyway, that's kind of just the way that I go about it. Um, read the text multiple times, write down key verses, study keywords and the notes in my Bible and cross-references and... Um, anything that sticks out to me that I want to learn more about, this may be the point when I dig into maybe the history of a place, you know, what, where was Corinth, what was happening in Corinth, what, what was the situation there. I want to summarize the interpretation in my own words, and uh, then I want to write down thoughts about how I maybe apply this to my life, maybe what God has for me in that. Um, and then I want to kind of wrap it up some way by highlighting Um, everything that I've read so I'm not saying in any way that that's the right way to do it (laughs) I'm just saying that's what I do and that's kind of the method that has worked best for me and you need to figure out what that is for you and uh, don't be afraid to do a little trial and error there so hey we're going to wrap it up for this week Uh, we'll pick back up next week and talk about uh, just some practical hermeneutical stuff and uh, then we have one more week after that and this six week course We'll be over. So thanks for uh, joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.